0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, November 5th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norden, here once again with our producer and co-host,
1: Nick Janusa. How's it going, Nick? It is going well, Maddie. First week in November, excited for it, loving it. Um, Actually started like a little challenge. It's called like the 75 hard, but I'm doing 30 hard. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, It rings a bell, I don't remember what it is. Okay. It's a bunch of different stuff, but we don't have to get into it right now. Um, yeah, I feel great. Let's just say I feel great. It's I'm three days in and I feel fantastic. Let's just say that.
0: Is it 30 days or sorry, is it 30 hard as in like
1: these 30 days you're going hard for November? (laughs) No, it's, it's all about like mental toughness and, uh, stuff like that. I don't know. It's pretty cool. You should check it out.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely look it up after this, because I was going to say, if it's 30 hard days, then the day after Thanksgiving, when you're just rolling out of bed full of mashed potatoes, is going to be tough. (laughs) A
1: (laughs) hundred percent. I need my tryptophan (laughs) nap on Thanksgiving day. I want to be 80% starch and 20% water.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's for the end of the month, though. Beginning of the month, we got an awesome, awesome month of episodes lined up for you, so... Stick around, we're gonna kick it off with a very fun episode one, starting now. it today here on tpt we cover the latest in climate change wildlife conservation renewable energy and environmental policy all on an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time this show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics tpt has a little bit for everyone so we are happy to have you as a listener Before we kick things off, as always, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and a five-star rating on Spotify if you're able to. They're still kind of rolling out that feature. Not everybody can. If you can, it would really help. If it's something you've done already, just keep mashing that five-star button and keep submitting new reviews because it helps the show and it helps Nick and
1: me. Right on. All right, our first quick hit comes from the New York Times. There's a bunch of articles grouped together as... G20 updates. Climate talks dominate Summit's final day.
0: Yeah. So the link that we're going to post in the show notes, it's not exactly a link to one article. It's kind of just itemized bullet points where you can click on each bullet point as an individual link. So it's there. Check it out. We're going to talk about some of it here. The G20, or the Group of 20, is an organization of the finance ministers and central bank governors and world leaders from 19 countries and the European Union. Uh, They met in Rome last weekend before COP26 began. And this group of articles includes a section at the top titled, Here's What You Need to Know. And that features a bunch of different articles you can check out, including President Biden's plan to untangle the supply chain, which is relevant to most aspects of life right now, especially with the holidays coming up. US and China relations appearing a little bit less heated in these international negotiations, and also an article about just what the G20 is. So, if you hadn't heard of it or if you're not really familiar, you can check that out too. And for this show, we're just going to focus on the climate and environmental messages that came out of these talks. A bunch of world leaders left the talks kind of celebrating how things went, and they were saying how it's a win for all the parties involved through the power of international cooperation. But in reality, Not much really happened in terms of climate policy. So let's start off with the good. The G20 leaders pledged to stop financing coal power plants outside of their own countries. And they also said they will pursue efforts to keep the average global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. The bad parts of this is that the G20 leaders didn't mention anything about financing coal power plants in their own countries. Um, And the second thing which... I consider it bad. It's more of just a question, but what does pursuing efforts mean? Uh, the way that I kind of broke it down for myself is it's like when I hardly change my diet, run a couple extra miles during the week and say, I am pursuing efforts to lose weight. Like it works (laughs) a little, but it's not that hard sweeping plan that we're looking for in the world or in my personal case, my stomach. (laughs) Greenpeace International's Jennifer Morgan called the agreement weak and said that it lacks ambition and vision.
1: Matt, you're not the only one in that pursuit, okay? <laughs> and yeah, I guess the good news is, is that they did say that they recognized that climate change is a lot worse at two degrees Celsius than 1.5. And this was all right before COP26.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's kind of like going to a restaurant and getting a free appetizer from the kitchen and You know, it's not your favorite thing you've ever eaten, but it's also not why you went to that restaurant. This wasn't a conference about climate change, but they started talking about it a little bit more. So I hope this was kind of the world leader's appetizer leading into the majority of the climate talks at COP26. That being said, 87% of global emissions are produced by G20 countries. So it's hard to not feel like this was a missed opportunity to really get that ball rolling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's actually dive right into that. Angela Duan of CNN writes, COP26 climate talks off to an ominous start after week G20 leaders meeting.
0: So in a weekly show like The Planet Today, something like COP26 is going to be really difficult to cover while it's actually going on. So for that reason, today we are only going to talk about day one. Uh, we'll give an update next week. And then our show in two weeks is going to feature a lot of the developments from COP26 once the conference is over and we hopefully have this big sweeping plan.
1: Yeah. And day one was mostly a welcome party where all the world leaders got together and gave their opening speeches about climate change and why they need to get something big done here. Yeah. So we're actually
0: going to talk about a few of the leaders and what they said here, and then we'll break down what this all means. So let's start with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, as a reminder, the COP26 conference is in Glasgow, Scotland. So the United Kingdom is the hosts. Uh, so our Metro d Boris Johnson um, has actually been surprising me quite a bit lately in terms of climate. And he said it's one minute to midnight on the doomsday clock and we need to act now.
1: Yeah. He also said that we have to move from talk and debate and discussion to concerted real world action on coal, cars, cash, and trees. Not more hopes and targets and aspirations, valuable though they are, but clear commitments and concrete timetables for change.
0: That's going to be my new tagline. Just coal, cars, cash, and trees.
1: (laughs) (laughs) New Twitter bio. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, this was just wild to me because Boris Johnson was a climate denier or at the very least someone who questioned the science throughout his career as a journalist. Um, Now he's the prime minister. So I'm very glad that he's kind of come around on this, but he made a name for himself by questioning the, the truth behind this. So whether he learned more about the science, like he claims, or if it's just that public support in the UK for combating climate change means that this is now the politically smart thing to do, I'm happy he's on the good side for this discussion now. And I hope that the policies that the UK and that the world are going to enact really backs that up.
1: Yeah. Boris confuses me too. Like I, I could totally see him doing the whole, I'm just going to say this because it's the, because it's what my, you know, soon to be voters want. And I'm just going to say and do anything in order to get myself elected. And I'm on a big stage and I'm going to say, you know, something really big that could be what this is. But I hope it's not. I hope he, he genuinely has learned more and and that he's willing to do more.
0: Yeah, it would be a real bummer if this was all just a big reelection ploy and he was like, hey, everyone, I know I'm your prime minister who ran on <laughs> questioning climate change. <laughs> but now now I get it. So if you didn't I'm vote enlightened. for me, yeah, if you didn't vote for me, <laughs> maybe this time around you will. I don't know. We'll <laughs> yeah. see. I guess that's what's going to come out of these next two weeks is we'll see, you know, is this all talk or is he going to be a leader in these negotiations And then we're going to have to see what the plans actually are that come out of this before we can determine whether or not we had real, solid, genuine leadership. But, you know, again, this was this was day one and we will get there.
1: Yeah, 100 percent.
0: U.S. President Joe Biden said, quote, we only have a brief window before us to raise our ambitions to fight climate change and brought up the economic costs that climate disasters are already causing He also brought up that lower-emission energy sources could create millions of jobs across the world. Biden had hoped to go to Glasgow with a program that rewarded power companies that moved away from fossil fuels and penalized those that don't, but Congress forced him to abandon that goal. And the bad news about President Biden's speech was that he did not call out China for their lack of emissions reductions directly, although he did say Chinese President Xi Jinping made a mistake by not coming to COP26. He also didn't mention any new targets or pledges for the US, but again, this was only day one.
1: Yeah, and I think he was right to call out President Xi Jinping. um, Yeah. Because China is emitting 28% of all global emissions. Like, you need to have that player at the table, you know, in order to make this a full, you know, sweeping change and consider this a, you know, complete overhaul.
0: Yeah, and it's going to be tough because he's not there to negotiate. He could very easily say, oh, I don't like the plans that the world came up with. I'm not going to sign it. Well, the way that you could have fixed that is by showing up and being part of negotiating. But
1: yeah. And Biden also acknowledged the irony in asking energy rich nations to boost their oil production while also asking world leaders to fight climate change. So I guess acceptance is the first step.
0: Yeah. Good point. Frustrating, ironic, but, you know, like you said, good that that he brought it up. From a speech that I considered fine to one that I found actually pretty encouraging by India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And he said that India would be net zero by 2070, which as a reminder is 20 years after we need the world to be net zero. But in theory, one country being a little late to the party should be evened out by other countries reaching net zero before 2050. The better part of Prime Minister Modi's speech was saying that India would aim to build 500 gigawatts of renewable energy and calling upon industrialized countries to help developing countries with their energy transition by contributing $1 trillion. So he's going to build a lot more renewable energy in India. And he's also saying, hey, all those people that benefited from conventional fossil fuel energies, it's your turn to help out the little guys. So Good on him for calling out the industrialized nations. And, you know, $1 trillion would go a long way. Yeah. So domestically, he also ensured that half of India's energy would come from sources other than coal by the end of the decade. So coal is still going to play a significant role in in India's energy sector in a decade. But that would reduce the carbon intensity of India's economy by 45 percent by 2030, which is a really, really strong start.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's that'd be great. And uh, we mentioned this earlier, but China's Xi Jinping did not come to COP26, and neither did Vladimir Putin of Russia.
0: Yep, nothing really to add there. It's frustrating because both countries are huge emitters. Like you said, China represents a little over a quarter of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, and Russia makes up 5.6% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah, we have a couple major players there. And for reference, the United States creates around 13% of global emissions each year, but... They're also responsible for the most historical emissions in the world.
1: Yeah. And let's finish up with the EU. So they laid out one of the world's most aggressive and detailed plans to become carbon neutral by 2050. And that includes a 38.5% of all energy coming from renewables by 2030. So what's interesting
0: about this is that the EU's 27 member states agree on the destination, but not the journey yet. France and Poland want nuclear energy to be considered green, and some countries are arguing about carbon taxes and how fast gas and diesel-powered cars should be phased out, but they do agree on the overall plan towards the end. So they're on a good track, and I'm curious to see where the plan overall ends up. Either way, their plan is enough to give them some leverage in international discussions— Europe only accounts for 8% of global emissions, but the EU's cumulative emissions are some of the world's highest since the Industrial Revolution. Two more things to note, and then we are on to some other topics. World leaders led by the US and the EU pledged to cut deforestation by 2030, including 85% of the world's forests, which are crucial for absorbing CO2 and slowing global warming. World leaders also pledged to cut methane by 2030, which is more potent than CO2, So this is huge. At the time of recording, China, India, and Russia had not joined the pact, which is an issue. But on the other hand, Brazil said it will join. And that's huge for deforestation and methane purposes.
1: Yeah, that's big news. And if you're listening and haven't already seen his speech, please do yourself a favor and watch Sir David Attenborough's. It was electric. Dude,
0: unbelievable, right? It was so good. So we retweeted part of his speech and obviously Nick and myself cannot do David Attenborough's voice any justice, his angelic, iconic (laughs) voice. But here's a quote that he said to the world leaders there. We are, after all, the greatest problem solvers to have ever existed on Earth. We now understand this problem. We know how to stop the number rising and put it in reverse We must halt carbon emissions this decade.
1: Yeah, and another one he said is, and I'm going to try and do the voice. If working apart, (laughs) we are a force powerful enough to destabilize our planet, surely working together, we are powerful enough to save it.
0: God, that was way better than I thought that that was going (laughs) to be. Yeah, I've definitely
1: watched enough planet Earth in my lifetime.
0: Dude, starting off, I was like, this is going to be rough, but no, I, that's just that's on me for, for not trusting you there, man. That was great.
1: <laughs> just trust me, okay, Matt?
0: Also, unbelievable quote. I, I love David Attenborough. He's one of my heroes and one of, in my opinion, the best people to ever walk the planet. So check out his speech.
1: Yeah, seriously. He's incredible. He's a national treasure. International treasure. <laughs> International treasure. Yeah, seriously. All right, so let's move on to some animal news. Endangered birds experience virgin birth. A first for the species from Jason Battelle of National Geographic.
0: California condors are one of the most endangered birds and animals on Earth. Scientists have been working for decades to try to boost the population, which was as low as 22 animals in 1982. Thanks to captive breeding and release programs, there were 500 California condors by 2019. To get that number up, scientists carefully chose which males and which females would breed, and then they examined their genetic data. They found that two male birds had no genetic contribution to the birds that should have been their fathers. Asexual reproduction does happen in animal species, but typically it's because cells produced with a female's egg act like sperm and fuse with the egg, and it mostly occurs in sharks, rays, and lizards. However, it's also happened with turkeys, chickens, and the Chinese painted quail when females have no access to males. This is the first time that it's happened with California condors. Other animal species have used asexual reproduction as a species survival tool, but scientists think this is unlikely to be the case because California condors can usually live up to 60 years old. But the two condors that were born without fathers that we mentioned earlier, they actually died before they turned two and eight respectively.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to mention a quote from Oliver Ryder, uh, and he said in the article, the only reason we were able to identify that this had happened in the condors is because of these detailed genetic studies. He says, so the birds in your backyard, are they occasionally producing a parthenogenic chick? Nobody's looking in deep enough detail to answer that question.
0: Yeah. It really makes you think, right? Like Ryder is the director of conservation genetics at the San Diego zoo. So clearly knows what he's talking about. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you think that's possible? I, I, I have no idea (laughs) to be honest.
1: I, I didn't think this was, I did not think this was possible in any world. Um, I, I, it like, it's asexual breeding. I don't know. Like I've heard of that happening in like,
0: you know, microbiology and like a cellular level or, you know, in certain lizard species before, but I didn't realize that well, they mentioned sharks and rays. I had no idea what was happening there. And I definitely had no idea that it was happening in, in birds, too. So, this is super interesting.
1: I feel like this is like a like world altering moment. Like, I feel like this could lead to, and I don't know what. Don't ask me what, because I have no clue what it could lead to. But, <laughs> We're just a couple of gum- dumb guys with a microphone. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like if asexual reproduction is possible, well, what else is possible? I don't know. Cloning. Can we clone? Can we, there's, there's been studies. There's a, what's it? Dottie the sheep. I think that
0: was a perfect. Oh yeah. The Scotland, Scotland. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. And and then what's interesting here too, is that, you know, it happened, but for whatever reason, they died after two years and eight years, which is way, way shorter of lifespan than they're supposed to have as California condors. So is it possible? We now see that it is sometimes, is it going to work out looking like, no, but again, how often does this happen in the animal kingdom? And we just have no idea.
1: Yeah. Super interesting question to pose.
0: Yeah. And I like the way that, um, Ryder actually closed out what he was talking about and he said, it's a reminder that less you think you understand nature, she always surprises you.
1: Yeah. Love it. I, I totally agree. All right, uh, so that's it for a quick hits. But, Nick, before we
0: go, I wanted to tell you about putting green in Brooklyn, which I went to on Saturday of last week with Kaylee and four of our friends to play some mini golf. Um, I would like to get in front of the bad news right away. I came in second place. Oof. Emily was dealing out there, and I just I couldn't close the gap at the end.
1: Ooh-wee, that's, that's tough, Matt. Congrats to her, though. Uh, are we going to have, like, a post uh, post-game press conference?
0: Uh, no, no further questions at this time we're on to <laughs> Cincinnati and we're going to get better next time. <laughs> the course itself, though, was really cool. And I'm sure people listening are like, who cares? Why is he talking about a mini golf story right now? Um, it's in Williamsburg in Brooklyn for anyone familiar with the area. And it's actually designed to showcase the problems and solutions of some of the climate change issues that are facing the world today. So each of the holes was created by a community partner, which their website says includes artists, designers, community and school groups, environmental advocacy organizations and public agencies. It's also not just one of those performative places that talks the talk. A portion of their proceeds are donated to local organizations that are addressing the impacts of climate change felt in New York City. Um I'm going to post some of the holes on our Instagram page. So check it out at Planet Today Pod for some pictures. But man, what a cool spot. Yeah, that sounds sweet.
1: I, we have to go there one day, maybe.
0: Yeah, next time you're in the area, you should definitely check it out. But the, the course itself is also built with a bunch of recycled materials. So when you walk in, there's a globe at the entrance, and it's made out of bottle caps and artificial turf scraps. And you know, using the different colored bottle caps that you get when you recycle things, it was cool to see this like big circular globe that obviously was like very meticulously planned to get that done. But yeah, it was cool. And then the curbing around each of the holes is made of recycled tires. Um, there's wood and brick that were actually salvaged from the old domino sugar factory. Oh, the pla- Yeah. The plants there are all native species. There's a hole that uses fallen tree branches. So there's no cutting involved. So Not only is this whole thing environmentally friendly, but there's also environmental messaging on each of the holes. So some of the ones that stood out to me is, you know, the first hole you get to hole one, it kicks off by talking about street litter and how that impacts our waterways and marine life. So you're starting at a very local, individualized level. So that was kind of cool as a, hey, here's how this impacts you. And then you start to build up to how it impacts the world. Um, So, by hole four, you're looking at what sea level rise could do to Manhattan Island by 2100. And then, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, working from local level to city level. And then eventually there's a hole with cows. Uh, I think it was hole nine, maybe. But um, anyway, there's a hole with cows and there's air blowing out of each of the cows. And that represents methane, which was definitely a pretty cute hole. But also you see the big impact that methane is going to have on your golf ball and on the world. (laughs) (laughs) And then my favorite hole, I think it was hole 10 or 11, but it kind of gives you three paths where you can shoot the ball. And each one represents if we do nothing to combat climate change, the current policies we have in place, and then the pledges and targets that we actually need to get there. And with that one, you can go for any route you'd like. But just like when you're fighting climate change, the pledges and targets route was the best way to actually get to the hole. So you could still, you know, you could still get a birdie if you end up taking that do nothing approach and going the really hard route. But it's a lot harder to sink that putt at the end than if you just plan ahead of time, (laughs) take the easy route and go for the pledges and targets.
1: Yeah, this sounds so cool. Like, uh, I think you're just getting woke while you're golfing like having some fun, getting woke, playing golf again, getting woke again. Yeah. It was cool.
0: Yeah. So if any of the listeners are ever in the area, check it out or hit me up because I love mini golf and yeah, it'd be fun to meet some listeners. So
1: mini golf is the best you have, it. you have like a playing bad. Well, yeah, true. But (laughs) like, if you get one hole in one, like if I leave having made one hole in one, I'm like, okay, I'm set. I can go have like I can go have like a shake or something and be pretty happy with myself.
0: Yeah, you shoot like two over on every single hole and then nail hole 18. You're like, I am the best player of all time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Maddie, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up this segment. What do you think?
0: Yeah, let's do it. And when we get back, we're going to do our documentary review
1: for the month. We are going to be talking about Smoky Mountain Park Rangers. Stay tuned. Nick, how was your Halloween? Oh, it was fantastic, Maddie. How about you? It was good. It was good. What What were you dressed up as? I dressed up as Chef Alfredo Linguini.
0: Love that. I absolutely love that. I was uh, I was Jake Peralta from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Oh, nice. The only downside to the costume is that Jake Peralta is a
1: tissue guy. Ooh. And you know how committed I am to Halloween. No, Matt, you don't 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 tell me you' you're a tissue guy. I had to
0: be a tissue guy for the night, and man, I just felt absolutely incomplete without Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief. It's a high performance daily use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. You can build your own bundles from limited-edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at
1: checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Guys, try it out. You will feel naked without it after using it for a week. Check them out. And not in a good way. Not in a good way. (laughs) Welcome back to the Planet Today, folks. And for November's documentary review, we watched Smoky Mountain Park Rangers on Disney Plus. We figured with COP26 and the G20 meeting being stressful, we'd go for something a little bit lighter on this review.
0: Yeah. And thank goodness we did, man. I mean, the the description for the documentary says, park rangers work to protect and manage black bears and other animals in Great Smoky Mountain National Park as they prepare for the coming of winter. So great time of year to watch this because we are also preparing for the coming of winter. And man, I just thought it was such like a nice, relaxing, but fun
1: documentary. It really was. It it was, you nailed it. It was fun. It was fun for the whole family. That's why it's on Disney Plus. Um, but it was also interesting too. Like I feel like I learned a lot as well. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever been to Great Smoky Mountain? I had not. I had driven through it on a road trip out to California, but never actually stopped in the park. And I wish I did because it was so beautiful when I was driving through. Yeah, it's an
0: unbelievable drive. So I'm kind of in the same boat. I drove through from North Carolina to Tennessee on my 23rd birthday and God, it was the most breathtaking drive I've ever experienced.
1: Yeah. It just seems so beautiful. I kind of wish I stopped.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. So we actually hopped out for like a couple minutes just to break up the drive on the way home. Um, And we went to the scenic overlook just to kind of get a good view of the mountains and it was so so awesome. I I wish that we had, you know, ascended one of the mountains on a hike and then seen that overlook from the top of that, but still a really cool view. And then we also went to the visitor center, but it's definitely a place I want to go back to and, you know, actually experience the park for more than 20 minutes.
1: Yeah, definitely. We need to do like a a planet today on wheels and we just like go to national parks and I don't know, maybe do like reviews or something. I don't know, we could do something crazy like that. We could do like take a week off and do a little road trip and record four
0: episodes and just release them (laughs) periodically (laughs) over the month. (laughs) That sounds pretty good.
1: We'll hit like six national We'll workshop it. Yeah, we'll see.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got to save up some vacation days first. Yeah, seriously. All right, so getting into the documentary, um, Great Smoky Mountains National Park is home to the densest black bear population in the U.S., which I had no idea about. I knew there was a lot of black bears there because when I went to the visitor center, the pin that I bought has a black bear on it but I didn't realize that that's like Black Bear City, USA. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't think I did either.
0: So yeah, in there, they say winter is coming and the bears need to eat. So I heard that and I was like, okay, we're talking hyperphagia. And then actually one of the rangers brings up that the bears are in hyperphagia, which is the period of time right before hibernation. So it's consuming as many calories as humanly or in this case barely possible. So think of Thanksgiving dinner, hyperphagia, like 30 minutes after after Thanksgiving dinner when you're just sloshing around with some stuffing and some mashed <laughs> potatoes and maybe some turkey if that's your thing. I'm a dark meat guy, by the way. You take that nap and you pass out. And that's exactly what these bears are doing.
1: <laughs> you talking about it is like glorifying it for me a little bit. I'm like really, really excited now.
0: <laughs> I'm excited for these bears. I'm excited for me to eat some stuffing. But yeah, man, it's it's a good time of year for these bears, it looks like. Absolutely. So I didn't realize that acorns were as nutritious and calorie dense as they are. So it was kind of cool how the bears just munch on acorns for a while until oh cool some berries or some small (laughs) small mammals to eat but yeah I had no idea acorns pack that much of a punch yeah
1: squirrels are under something
0: are you about to be an acorn guy or can we expect like a braised acorn dish
1: (laughs) are acorns like can we eat acorns I don't think I don't think we can as humans see I have no idea but there's a lot of things that we eat where it's like okay mushrooms for
0: example they're delicious. I love, love, love a good chicken marsala or like mushroom on pizza or whatever. It's a fungus. Like I'm not going (laughs) to eat mold, but you give me mushrooms, which is also a fungus. And I'm like, yes, sign me up. So I have no idea. Maybe we can, maybe we should eat acorns.
1: And now I want to like look up, like there's acorn squash. I know that, but like, I don't know. Are there acorn dishes? And what do you do? Do you just smash it with a hammer? I don't know. Something food for thought, right? Food for thought. Yeah. 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 So uh, wildlife technician Ryan Williamson is one of
0: the first guys that they talk to in the movie, and he basically has to just do a bunch of babysitting in the beginning, because a lot of people were not respecting the 50-yard rule between visitors and wildlife. So he's talking about his job and what he does, and every minute or so, he's like, hey, back up, please leave some room for the bears. And he just has to keep reminding people, like, (laughs) hey, bears are wild animals. They could actually hurt you if they... Want to, or if you get too close to their cubs, so back <laughs> yeah. up,
1: yeah, I feel like they like took like at least fifty shots of him just in b roll, just been like, hey, come on, back it up, guys, fifty yards, please,
0: yeah, that's. That's going to be the next documentary. It's like Ryan Williamson, the movie. And it's just a super cut of him being like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> just
1: like, yeah, that's a bear. You guys got to move. If you're this far into the review,
0: uh, please be the change you want to see in visitors at this park. And don't make any of the park staff have to tell you to step away from the bears. Like, give them that 50 yards. You could still see them. Bring some binoculars. Bring your camera phone with some XL Zoom. But... <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Don't, don't just make their jobs harder than it has to be. Seriously. Um, I did kind of laugh when he brought up people feeding the bears, um, because like you shouldn't feed wildlife. And I think most people recognize that, but every time we see a national park documentary, they're always like, yeah. And we always have to tell people don't feel, feed the wildlife, like, just don't do it. But there's a line that he goes, you know, People say the bear is hungry. Well, of course, it's a bear. They're always hungry, and their only job is to find food. Just, <laughs> the way he said that, I was like, yeah, that's, of course. Like a bear is not going to turn down a sandwich. um You do start to see some bears relying on people for food, or he mentions how they've attacked people for food in the past. So that's why you don't do it. So
1: yeah, protect protect the man or woman next to you, like just don't feed them. I get so pissed at people for that. And I also get pissed at people on the beach who just feed seagulls. I'm like, you're not helping them. They don't know what they're doing now. Now they're just going to like rely on you for food and starve when the winter comes when there's no people on the beach.
0: Yeah. And then some more about the park. They talk about how on a clear day, you can see up to 100 miles from some of its peaks. And it's actually home to 19,000 species, including 200 species of birds and 50 species of fish. And Another specific animal species that they dive into next is actually elks. So we see a bunch of elks that are not getting along with visitors or each other. And, dude, this scene was so wild. Like, I've I've seen elks fighting each other. I've never seen elks just charging at people.
1: Yeah, dude. They are aggressive. And, like, if you see an elk coming at you, you have to just think, my life is over. Like, they are intimidating as heck. Have you seen one in person? I don't think I have. No. Okay. So not only are they intimidating, they are
0: massive. They are so much bigger than you expect just watching those. And I guess, you know, I believe it with the, with the videos where there's people in it, you get a good frame of reference, but like dude elk. And then I've never seen one of these in person, but moose, every time I see a video of a moose, I'm like, holy crap. I cannot believe how big this animal is.
1: (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. Moose are huge. I've seen a moose in person. They're massive.
0: Um, so, wildlife biologist and park ranger Joe Yarkovich does research and management on the elk herds, and he says that during the fall, he needs to maintain distance between elk and the visitors. So, some more b-roll that probably got cut. It's just him going, "Hey, hey, hey!" Those are elk, like backing people away, and you know, the the job as a whole seems so cool and so interesting, and they seem to really love it. But I'm sure reminding people, like, "Hey, that's a wild animal. Please do not go near it." I don't think that's at the top of their list for reasons why they love that job.
1: Yeah, definitely at the bottom of the list. And I remember at the beginning of the, of the um, documentary, Ryan Williamson is, is uh, he's in his car and he's, he's like listening to the radio and he's like, yeah, this is going to be a, this is going to be a call about like, uh, I have to go tell people to go stop like getting close to the bears And sure enough, the woman's like, yeah, can you go down there and uh, I need someone to the bears or something like that. Like just the the disheartening
0: tone of his voice, like "Ah, this is going to be another bear (laughs) call with people. (laughs) Like like they (laughs) clearly love the parks and maintaining it and, you know, working with the wildlife and around the park. I'm sure they love having visitors there, but if you're going to have to interact with a park ranger, make it, hey, which way should I go for this hiking trail or hey, so what's going on over there? I see an animal far in the distance. Don't make them come have to seek you out and be like, hey, you, back away from this animal. Yeah. So elk were actually abundant in the US until the 1790s, but European colonization led to them dying out in the early 1800s. In 2001, elk were reintroduced to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and now the herd is about 200 animals. So this is still a conservation project in progress, But it is cool to see that progress in real time.
1: Yeah, definitely. And
0: then there's a scene shortly thereafter where you see the smoke coming off the mountains and you kind of understand why it's named Great Smoky Mountains National Park. (laughs) Dude, it's just unbelievable. Like, such a cool view. And they say it's from volatile organic compounds that create the foggy,
1: smoky look. Was it like that when you drove through, or...? it was it was a very foggy morning uh, I remember getting up because I had just slept in I can't remember if it was Virginia or Tennessee but I had just slept somewhere um, near the near the park and then I woke up super early to get get a head start on the, on the day and I just remember driving through there was like no one on the road and just like beautiful mountains around me like the fog setting in it was just beautiful
0: When I went, it was February, so we kind of had this hazy shade of winter, but uh, it wasn't exactly foggy, and yeah, I think next time I go, it's got to be spring or fall, so you can get all that organic material to create the, the fog and smoke, but man, what a cool shot. Seriously, beautiful. So next up, we hear from Shane Paxton, who's a wildland firefighter in the park, and he says that fires appear to be worse today than they were 10 years ago. And we actually do see a man-made fire they're working on to help with field restoration. So there's a serious team of firefighters to avoid what happened in November 2016, when the largest series of wildfires to hit the park in over a century hit the park for over a week. And over 11,000 acres were burned.
1: Yeah, this was something I, I really did not know. I feel like I think of wildfires as something that happens out west. It's not really something that affects the east too much at all. Uh, you know, California, Washington, Oregon. But, you know, east really doesn't get hit with any uh, fires, like wildfires like that.
0: Yeah, I had no idea. And when they showed the actual damage in the videos of them driving through the fire, I was just amazed because like you said, we don't really hear about that as much on the East coast. So yeah, for 11,000 acres to burn in a wildfire, that's just insane to think about. And the prescribed burn that they're working on in the scene that we see, um, they said it helps reduce hazardous fuels like the dead underbrush that kind of acts as a tinder for wildfires. And that reminded me a lot of when Tyler Smith talked to me about this for our August 20th episode. So if you're interested, in this sort of scenario, uh, my buddy Tyler is a wildland firefighter, and provides some really, really awesome insight into that whole landscape. Um, August twentieth is the episode date.
1: Yeah, my brain went to the same place when you when I saw this. I was like, oh wow, like we have an episode for this. Um, and I also was thinking like, wow, I wonder if I hadn't like listened to that episode, would I have just been completely in awe that they were just lighting up the ground? yeah <laughs> I don't know Prescribe burning to me before that episode was like completely wild thought
0: yeah and it's it's important though and I like I said I had no idea and You had no idea, and here we are. A couple of uh, not-quite-experts, but... I am learning
1: a ton from the show, is what I'm trying to say.
0: Awesome. I hope the (laughs) listeners are, too, and it's not just us rambling, but we do a little bit of rambling. It's fun. All right, less rambly. A really interesting comparison is made between the National Park Service and Native Lands, and they show the Koala Boundary, which is a 56,000-acre area, which actually belongs to the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Um, I did some research here, independently because I was kind of curious why national geographic would call them Indians and not native Americans because you know, they're native to America and not from India or the West Indies. So it turns out that the Eastern band of Cherokee Indians is just the name of their tribe. So that was why if you like me were kind of confused when you heard Indians, that's actually the correct term here. And the koala boundary is autonomous land. So Caleb Hickman supervises wildlife management within that boundary And since it's tribal land, people also live there. So within that zone, it's more about how people interact with the wildlife as opposed to keeping the wild wild and keeping visitors on the park trails and all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of a cool comparison between the two.
1: Yeah, definitely. And they also like had, um, I don't know if you remember, but they set up like the barbed wire. Uh, in order to check to see if there was any wildlife coming through and they had like a computer and camera set up and all this stuff and one of the shots was like they they had it on camera of like a raccoon who's just uh, like he is it's like your mom took a selfie with her phone and she didn't know that the front camera was on (laughs) or like she was trying to take a picture she wasn't trying to take a selfie she was trying to take a picture of someone else but she didn't realize that the selfie camera was on and she just took the picture it was hysterical yeah i was dying
0: yeah, and actually, the barbed bar wire you mentioned was super interesting because it was sharp enough where it could basically like pluck some hairs, but not sharp enough that it would do any sort of damage. Like it wouldn't break skin on the animals. Which that just that's so interesting to me because it takes so much meticulous planning to be able to say yeah. this is going to be great for science and we're not going to do any harm. Like that's really really cool, and I never never would have known about that without this show.
1: Yeah, and I when I saw it at first, I was like, okay, this is horrendous and then and then he described it i was like okay all right that's actually really cool
0: (laughs) yeah let me let me put away my twitter fingers for a second let me
1: back up let me relax and i'll i'll get back into it
0: um so next up we actually go back to ryan williamson and this was probably my favorite part of the documentary um they talk about how sometimes they have to intervene when bear cubs are left as orphans due to their mothers being hit by cars or dying by other means and He talks about the importance of raising the cubs without humans imprinting on them, meaning they can still re-enter the wild. So first knee-jerk reaction, bear cubs are like 9.9 out of 10 cute. And that's on a scale of like (laughs) 10 out of 10 being baby elephants. But dude, bear cubs are so (laughs) cute.
1: (laughs) Oh, they're they're insanely cute. And there was also one scene where there's like an eight week old orphan and, um, there's a mother in the area. It's not its mother, but, um, wasn't the eight month olds or eight week olds mother, but they like put the baby near the mother and she like smelled it and like brought it into her, her little den and was like, basically took it on, like basically adopted the, uh, the little bear cub. So that was really, really cool.
0: Yeah. That was awesome. And then like, They also talk about just re-releasing bears and how, you know, you see all the the intricate wildlife management that goes on within the parks, and it seems so rewarding. But we see them re-release a couple bears, and there's three of them, actually. So spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, go check this out. Uh, The first one just bolts into the water, and I was cracking up (laughs) because I was like, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Go swim, brother. <laughs> the, the, yes. The second one like perfectly understands the assignment and just like wanders off into the woods. And you're like, all right. All right. Halfway. So far, so good. Third one gets scared of the rangers and all of the park visitors. So it actually climbs up a tree and watching the rangers have to problem solve. This was so interesting to me. And I'm, I'm kind of glad we got to see that because it was Difficult. Like they had to try to manage this bear that stuck up a tree, trying to get it down, trying to keep all the park visitors away. That way they can actually do their job. And, you know, if the bear runs down the tree and there's a bunch of visitors there, that's further startling it. And who knows what happens. So watching all of that kind of intersect at once was so, so interesting.
1: Yeah, it was really cool. Like seeing that first one just like run into the water and like he really did not know yeah. where he was going. He was like a dog when like you they finally are like let outside and they could just roam free where they just like the zoomies get the zoomies and just yep. go crazy <laughs> like that that bear got the zoomies and then like after that he's like okay all right I like got on land he was like okay I'm cool I'm good I am I am not a water bear <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: but yeah I thought overall this was really cool to check out kind of seeing the ins and outs of being a park ranger and all the wildlife management practices that go through with it and you know it's it's such a cool job if you love wildlife it's definitely not without its dangerous situations though with animals and um, wildfires but you know i could see why the rangers in the documentary really really all seem to love their job so much
1: yeah 100 percent. really cool job and honestly kind of want to be one now not gonna lie
0: i think that's like every environmentalist dream job it's like i want to work at a national park doing something cool <laughs> All right, before we close things out for the day, same three questions that we always wrap up our documentary reviews with. Nick, what was the most impactful scene for you?
1: I think it's gotta be when, when they were, uh, not to reiterate myself, but when that eight week old uh, little baby cub was, was taken on by that mother, like she did not even blink an eye. She was like, okay, it's crying. Uh, I'm gonna take it in and that's mine now. And I'm gonna take care of it. Like I thought that was just so cool.
0: Yeah, that was that was really cool to see. And I'll also repeat myself just for uh, solidarity here. But <laughs> when they re-released the bears into the wild, that was definitely definitely my favorite scene. Like they had to clap and scare them off so they would run away from the humans. And just the look on all the rangers' faces, like they looked so proud. Yeah, And also just watching the bears run, I was sitting there on the couch just loving it. <laughs> Absolutely loving it. My favorite bear
1: was the one that climbed the tree. <laughs> yeah, he, he gets up in the tree, turns around, he's like, what's up? He's yeah, like, well, now what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. All right, Matt, what was your key takeaway for the film as a whole? Um, So mine was actually that being a
0: park ranger is definitely a cool opportunity to work alongside wildlife, maintain national parks and ensure the safety of the park visitors. Like there's so many different aspects of that job that we don't really get to see. And this documentary gave us a chance to, to see those behind the scenes moments. So that was cool. It's definitely a really important job
1: yeah I agree. It, it was really cool to see the the multifaceted nature of the job. I thought that was really cool, too. I think my key takeaway was, don't be a douche canoe when you go to these national parks. Like appreciate the park rangers. like they're doing a very difficult job. There's a lot of aspects to their job, and you have to let them do what they're going to do, and you have to let the wildlife be wild. like that's the purpose. I think hes I think Ryan Williamson talks about it, but like, you want to see the wildlife in its, you know, in their own habitat, like being normal. And when you come into play and like, you want to take pictures of them up close and stuff, you ruin that like naturalness of, and the funness of national national parks. So that's my key takeaway.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I think I just came up with the perfect, like dumb brain. I am a simple man way to equate this. And it's like, reverse the roles, right? And let's say the bears really want to look at you. You're going to get uncomfortable if a bear gets close to you. So the bear is going to get uncomfortable if you start creeping up and getting close to it. So just
1: like you said, keep wild, wild. Definitely. Yeah. It's a very simple thing. Like treat people (laughs) and animals with respect and distance. Yeah. All right. Last one on a scale of wouldn't
0: recommend to I loved it. What would you rate Smoky Mountain Park Rangers?
1: I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, I thought it was really cool to see the park rangers and what they do. I loved watching the bears. I thought it was a fun watch for the whole family. 10 out of 10. Nice. That's high praise.
0: Yeah. I thought it was good. It was definitely fun. Um, I liked how it was a short commitment too. And I would say that I liked it a lot, especially this week, like with cop 26 and the G20, like I was just on edge for (laughs) quite a bit last (laughs) weekend and into this week. And then, you know, sitting
1: down and just kind of decompressing watching this was so nice. Yeah. It's a quick 42 minutes. You, you got to watch it. It's, it's really an easy watch. All right. That'll do it for this week's
0: episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be joined by Giselle Herrera, who will be guest co-hosting the show with us. Um, she was actually my first interview and was on the third episode of TPT. So if you want to get familiar with Giselle beforehand, go check that out. If not, you'll get to know her next week. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planettodaypod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you could share the show with a friend. Like we say every week, we love getting new listeners. We love engaging with people on social media. So help get some eyes on the show and you know, share our posts, comment on our stuff. We respond to everybody, even the bots. There's a couple automated things that get sent through because of the hashtags we use. Love the bots. And I'll even even reply to them and say, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, send that too. If you have a guest you would like for us to have on, you can let us know and we can try to make that happen. Got some cool guests lined up for the next couple weeks and months, so let's keep that ball rolling. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're able to, give us a five-star rating on Spotify. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt norden. We are co-hosted and produced each week by the incredibly talented
1: Nick Janusa, who also does all of our music. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlandcape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E.
0: Our logo was made by Kaylee Vitz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.